And all God's people said, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And thank you, team, for leading us this morning to worship God. Uh, I do appreciate um, the mention earlier the weekend to remember marriage conferences. Many of you have been to those, as have my wife and I, multiple times. Uh, very good times. If you've never gone to one, you should. They happen all over uh, the country, including here in Portland, uh, coming up in November, I believe. It actually used to be at Jansen Beach, not the Moda Center, but if you're a Cowboy fan, you wouldn't know that. <laughs> Sorry. Every time I know Jordan's going to get on the stage in the fall, it's just, it's a matter of time, and it's like just a little bit of time. Before you know the, like, the big blue star, it's just coming, so we can handle it. We can handle it. <laughs> I want to read the passage of scripture that we are going to look at this morning, which thankfully has nothing to do with the Dallas Cowboys. <clears throat> We're actually in Matthew chapter 7 this morning, so I want to encourage you to grab a Bible if you've got it. If not, you're free to use the one in the rack and the pew in front of you for the time that you're here this morning. This is the final sermon in a series of sermons that are, are collected together that we've been preaching through, um, known as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we started this uh, about four months ago, and we are wrapping up that series today with a look at the final passage in this Sermon on the Mount, as well as kind of a, a recap of the entire thing. And I hope to bottom line this and say, what does God intend for us as his people to take away from this Sermon on the Mount? So let me read, beginning Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24, and down to the end of the chapter in verse 29, our text for this morning. Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd, crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word for us this morning. This is Jesus' summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount. When he says, uh, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, and then he goes on and talks about building a house on the rock and the sand, the words of mine he's talking about are the words of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's chapters uh, 5, 6, and 7, and everything that he has taught us in those chapters. It's a fitting conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. So I throw my notes all over the room. Awesome. I uh, wonder if you've ever had the experience, most of us probably have, <clears throat> of investing in something heavily in the hope that like you're going to need it someday or it's going to pay off someday, and then you get there and find out that it was all worthless. Exciting feeling, is it not? <laughs> I came really close to having one of those experiences just this last December. Um, I'd ordered this wonderful Christmas gift for my wife, Amy. I was waiting for it to arrive, and since uh, she's home more than me during the week, I thought I'm going to be really clever and have them send it to the church office. Isn't that smart? And then I'll be able to wrap it and smuggle it home and get it under the Christmas tree. Um, and they had a guaranteed arrival date. <laughs> 
That told me I was going to be fine until the calendar's clicking by and clicking by and suddenly like Christmas is coming. I'm like, you know, I've never seen that package and I'll skip a lot of the details, but I started getting really worried. I'm like trying to get in touch with the shipper and figure out where this thing is and pretty soon it's like it's not coming and it's not coming and now they're doing like well we're doing weekend deliveries because we're you know rushing everything to Christmas and and we're we're handing packages to like third-party delivery agencies to try to get everything delivered and and these delivery guys are starting at like four o'clock in the morning and going till midnight trying to make all these deliveries and so then right before Christmas we start getting notes here at the church office saying uh we tried to deliver your package but your office was closed And I'm looking at the note, and I'm like, well, yeah, you came by at 5.30 a.m. on Saturday. Yeah, the office was closed, you know. We'll try again the next business day. Well, the next business day was like, it was Christmas. I was like, I'm not going to get this package at all, you know. And I also came down with a moderate flu at the time, so I'm like not feeling really well, but I'm determined to get this package, and so I'm trying to figure out like what can I do, and I finally track it down, I get some people on the phone who thankfully were very nice and working very hard to be helpful, and yeah, they tracked the package down, and I said, well, here's the thing we can do. We can, we can send this note, and the driver of the truck will drop it off at a local kind of delivery site, and you could go there and pick it up. I'm like, fine, you know, whatever. But this like, has to be done today, or it's like over. Well, there's just one catch. Um, because you had it delivered to a business address, not a home address, you can't pick it up unless you have verification that you actually work for that business. You're kidding me. Having this delivered to the church was such a good idea. I was on that. What kind of verification are you talking about? We don't have like microchips under our skin. You know, they're like, well, you need an official letter on organization letterhead signed by somebody else that says you're actually an employee there. And then we'll look at that letter and your ID and then you can get your package. I'm like, you're killing me. I'm supposed to go get this thing in like an hour and... So, like, I'm scrambling around, and, and I call our office manager, Rolly. She's out of town this morning, but I would, like, have her stand up and give her a high five because, like, that day, she was actually heading out of town. I'm like, I hate to say this, but, like, could you meet me at the church for a second and just print a letter and sign it? And she's like, yeah, sure. So she meets me here. I've got the flu. I'm running around. I'm, dry, you know, we print up this letter saying, I actually work here. You know, she signs it as our office manager. I'm like, I don't know if that's good enough, but it's going to have to be, you know. And so she leaves, and then I go down to this distribution center, and long story short it's like I'm finally there it's just a couple hours before they close and it's over and there's my box it's in the middle of the floor and the lady that's there working she's like um yeah I do need to check your ID here it is and I got my letter in the envelope she doesn't even ask for it (laughs) now I have to say um not being a Dallas Cowboy fan I'm not entitled so no I'm sorry (laughs) I'll stop in January. <laughs> For a guy who actually got the pa- I got the package. So like it worked. Whoo. I got her her gift on Christmas. And I got home and she's like, what are you doing? You have the flu. Where are you going? I was like, I'm going to get this box. You know, then I crashed for a few days. For a guy who got the package, I don't know why I'm complaining, right? But it's just, it was so, like, I went through so much effort to get this whole thing. And like, actually my worst fear was going to be like, oh, somehow that doesn't meet our criteria and you can't have it. In which case, I probably would have, you know, I don't know, strangled somebody or done something very non-pastor-like. Because when you put that much effort into something, and then you find out, like, oh, it doesn't work, or you didn't need it at all, you're just like, what a colossal letdown. 
And that kind of terrible, horrible future is exactly what Jesus is talking about in the entire Sermon on the Mount, which is why I think he ends it the way that he does, except he's not talking about delivering Christmas gifts, as important as that may be to us at the time. It's not really that important in the grand scheme of things. But where we end up for all eternity and the welcome we receive into heaven, if we should get there, is incredibly important. And that's what he's talking about. Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount with three metaphors. This is the third of them. We looked at the last two, the two previous Sundays. He said, first of all, in verses 13 and 14, life is like, there's like two roads. One is wide, and most people go down it, and it leads to destruction. The other is narrow, relatively few people find it, and that's the road that leads to life. That's his first word picture, two roads. Secondly, uh, we saw this last Sunday, there are two kinds of fruit that are produced by a tree, the tree being a person's life. And so he says there's two kinds of lifestyles Uh, There's good fruit that ultimately leads to life, and then there's bad fruit that ultimately leads to condemnation. We looked at that last Sunday. Now, he closes it with this final metaphor. There are two foundations on which one can build. A shaky, sandy foundation that ultimately will result in the end of time of your wonderful house that you built completely and catastrophically collapsing in on itself, or a good foundation, a solid foundation of rock that will stand the test of final judgment. All three of these metaphors, these word pictures, make the same point. Two worlds are colliding, God's world and the world of sinful, rebellious humanity. And when those two worlds collide, we must make a choice. That's how our Lord ends the Sermon on the Mount. Those three metaphors don't, don't really add any new teachings or new information. They're a way of pulling back and summarizing, what does everything that I just told you amount to? And he says it amounts to this. Bottom line, life consists of two worlds colliding, and when they collide, you must make a choice between one or the other. There is no befriending or being part of or allied with both worlds. Today's passage about these two foundations actually flows right out of the previous point that we saw last Sunday in verses 21 to 23, where Jesus had said, "Uh, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. He picks up the same thing this week, and he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is building his house on the rock. In other words, because it's possible to be self-deceived, because it's possible to be self-deceived about where I stand with God. A wise person understands that, you know, I could agree with God's teachings and yet actually be building my life on a totally different value system. So the wise person builds his or her whole world around the things that Jesus has taught. That's the difference between the two. As the Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's the biggest danger in all of this, is that because I listen to Jesus and I agree with him and I go to church and I say, yes, I believe in Jesus, and if they ask me on a survey of a bunch of boxes, what religion are you, and I always check the Christian box, that must mean I'm good with God. You see, Jesus was speaking, if you remember, way back at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He was addressing these teachings directly to his disciples in the hearing of a larger crowd that was surrounding him who were not yet his disciples, but they were all Jewish people. They thought of themselves as God's people, 
Uh, They went to their synagogues. They listened to their rabbis teach them the laws of Moses. They thought they were God's people. They thought they were in with God. And what Jesus does is he takes his disciples, this relatively smaller group of guys who have totally committed their lives to him. They're totally sold out. They've left everything. They're like, Jesus, whatever you say, whatever you do, we're going to follow you. What's that mean? He says, let me tell you. Here comes the Sermon on the Mount. And so he's talking to them, but he's knowingly talking to them in the hearing of these crowds because he wants everybody else in the crowd to say, well, wait a second. Am I really good with God or not? Because it's possible to be self-deceived. In that sense, that's part of why the Sermon on the Mount is a really uncomfortable part of Scripture to read, you know? It's uncomfortable at least because when you read it, you realize the ethical standards are higher than any of us can attain. And so it makes us feel like, oh my gosh, I just feel a weight of how much I don't measure up to God's desires for me. But it's also sort of weighty and heavy because there's this, there's this confrontational side to it. And maybe that's too strong a word, maybe not. I'm not quite sure. But, but there's a sense in which our Lord is trying to jolt and shock us a little bit to realizing that maybe I think I'm okay and I'm not okay and I better think about that. And that's not a comfortable thought. But there's a very good side to that bad news. The good side is the kingdom of heaven is open to any who will repent. And he's saying, I'm telling you how to find life. And if you build your life on my words, you can know that you know that you know that you will be with me for all eternity. There is great hope in being clear on what I'm building my life on. The point of the metaphor, build your house on a rock. The house, very clearly, is simply our, our life. Um, it's, it's the time and the energy. Uh, it's my money. It's my relationships. It's my schedule. It's the hundreds of little decisions that I make every day that make up the stuff of my life. And what, it really, what he's really talking about is the foundation is sort of like the core values that we have, the core aspirations and goals that we're striving for. What am I spending all of that money to achieve? What am I investing all of that energy to accomplish? If everything goes the way I'm hoping it goes in my life, it's going to lead to what? When I answer those questions, is that your foundation? That's what you're living for. So build your house, that is, build your life on the right foundation, not the wrong one. If you build on a rock, the storm will come, which could be just hard things in life, but I think in the context here, it's more explicitly talking about God's final judgment and evaluation of every human being. That will come, and if your house is built on the rock, it will stand. You build your life on the wrong foundation, and it doesn't matter how nice the house was once, and for a while, it may have been a sweet place. But when the final judgment comes, the foundation goes and the whole thing crashes and Jesus says, make no doubt, that is a catastrophic experience. So in verse 24, he says that building our life on the rock means living out his teachings in every situation that life throws at us. It means hearing and doing everything that he's been telling us for three chapters now. As, as we kind of step back in this last Sunday of the Sermon on the Mount and try to take in the whole thing, I want to I pull us back up to the sort of 20,000-foot level and, and look again at everything Jesus has been teaching us. From the beginning, we have said, starting in chapter 5, that he's built the Sermon on the ra- Mount around three core ideas, and then he just applies those three ideas to one situation in life, after the next, after the next, after the next, and that's most of the body of the Sermon on the Mount. The three key ideas begin with this idea that two worlds are colliding. That's sort of where we've taken our, uh, our, cue, <clears throat> excuse me, our cues 
for this sermon series. Two worlds are colliding. In the person of Jesus, the world of God is invading the world of man, and that becomes the basic framework of a gospel-centered Christian. That's my basic mindset. Now, what he's really bringing up here at the end is this idea that not only do two worlds collide, but when those two worlds collide, we must choose which one we are going to build our lives on. Not just which one we are going to verbally assent to or agree with, but which one we are actually going to build our lives on. Jesus' goal here, I think, is to help us get our eyes up off of the daily, incessant demands of just living life that can so often leave us just thinking about where are we going to be when we're retired? Uh, good night. Where are we going to be financially six months from now? Six months from now? What's my schedule like next week? Next week, what are we having for dinner tonight? Life can be so demanding, you just get snowed under this endless barrage of ur- urgent screams and demands for your time and your attention and your energy and Without long, everyone forgets that there's even another world out there. I mean, we know it, but it doesn't really occupy a place in our thinking or our decision-making on a daily basis. And what he's trying to do here, in part, in the Sermon on the Mount, is get our eyes up to see the reality of the spiritual world that's all around us all the time and to remember every minute of every day that life, true life, comes from living for God's world, not this one. To put it another way, friends, in a way that's often said, and it's a good saying, very simply, this world is not our home. It's not. Now, I'll admit, that phrase rolls off the tongue pretty easily. And if you're a Christian, you probably immediately recognize the truthfulness of it. It's not only easy to say, it's easy to appreciate the truthfulness of it. But the reality of framing my whole life that way is different especially for 21st century suburban American Christians. You ask one of the few Yemeni Christians out there, and there are some, by God's grace, you ask them if this world is their home, and they would probably stare at you dumbfounded, like, I can't believe you would even ask that type of a question. Their world is so hostile to them They understand there's no peace in this life. And so the idea of living for the next is maybe more real and more tangible. The unfortunate thing for us is that in the last several generations, maybe a couple hundred years if you want to go back that far, American Christians have had a tendency to think it really is. We're actually pretty at home here in this world where it's not only materially comfortable, but where we can do some of the things that our culture says a Christian should do and really not have to pay much of a price for it. It it, it all fits. The clothes just all fit. It's comfortable. It's home. One of the interesting things to see right now is as our current culture drifts more clearly away from basic gospel and Bible-centered ideas, which of course it is doing, one of the interesting things to look at is to see the reactions at least judging by blogs and social media, of a lot of really conservative evangelical Christians as culture gets more and more hostile to the Christian faith. More and more of us, if what I'm reading says anything, are struggling with fear 
and anger because we sense our, our walls closing in on us. We sense more and more that our public schools aren't safe places for our kids. Our workplaces aren't safe places to just be a good employee and love Jesus and leave everybody else alone. That's not even good enough anymore. And we're not exactly sure what to do with all of this. And at least for some of us, the response is fear and anger. Sometimes manifest as a desire to push back on that and preserve the safety net culturally for being a Christian how we should think about all that's maybe the subject of a whole nother sermon. I only bring that up here to say that that's what immediately hits my heart when I see Jesus saying, guys, there's two worlds and this one is not your home. And I have to wonder if maybe as American Christians who have often been so far ahead of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world in terms of our education and our material wealth, and we've been able to um, establish Bible schools and send missionaries and, and lead the way in global Christianity for the last couple hundred years, I have to wonder if in some ways we're actually behind them and only now starting to clue in with what most Christians have understood throughout most of history and what probably most Christians understand even in the world today. This is not our home. Why would we expect it to be? That's what Jesus is saying. And he's also saying that the pot of gold at the end of the path of Jesus is far more valuable and beautiful than the best joy this world could offer you. There's maybe no better illustration of this that I can think of uh, than the story, the well-known story of Noah in Genesis chapter 6. It's actually the part of the story that's left out that I find intriguing this morning. Genesis chapter 6 is where God goes to Noah and tells him, hey, this flood's coming. I'm going to judge all these sinful people. You get to be saved, so here's what you need to do. Build a boat, right? And he tells him to build a boat. I mean, the thing is like, it's not a little dinghy, right? I mean, it's massive. Now, his neighbors thought Noah was a little dinghy because he starts building this massive boat, and they're like, dude, What's going on? Now, the part of the story that gets skipped over is Genesis 6 doesn't actually say how long it took him to build this. It does tell you how big the thing is. And while I'm sure he had help from his sons and, you know, whatever, I, like, there were no, like, cranes and, and, and arc welders and, you know, other things that, you know, nail guns and air compressors. I mean, you could see apartment buildings go up these days in seemingly just a couple of months. I have no idea how long it took that man to build that boat, but I guarantee it was a long time. And here's why I think that's significant. There he is, month after month, probably year after year, I would imagine, I don't know, slaving away on this giant barge. Now, it's a pretty cool Sunday school story. God told Noah to build a boat. He built a boat. Everybody thought he was crazy. They got proved wrong. Isn't that awesome? God was right. We're skipping over a lot of time. I admit for a moment I'm taking a little bit of liberty with what's not in the Bible, but I think it fits the narrative of the scriptures. Can you imagine... Like what Noah was thinking, not just the day that God told him to build the boat, but the next day, and the next month, and the next year. What else could that man have done with all of that time, all of that energy, all of that money that he spent on this colossal project because he had a word from the Lord? One can imagine that all around him, he knows that people are using their time and energy planting and harvesting their fields, uh, planting and harvesting their grapes and making fresh, good wine out of it, uh, raising their flocks, baking fresh bread from the, the grain that they just harvested, enjoying fresh milk from their goats and their cows and, and, and fresh ribeyes from the fattened calf that they just slaughtered, 
They're putting in their hard work, they're building their personal kingdoms, and they're reaping the benefits. And I, this is where I'm taking liberties, but I can almost imagine him up there on the rail of this frame, you know, of this big boat, 30 feet up in the air, whatever he is, and he's working away one evening, and oh, the neighbor's ribeye comes across the field. Oh, man. Guy stopped by this morning, looked at me like I was an idiot, again, said, hey, it's harvest time. The wife's making fresh bread, about to kill the fat calf. You're welcome to come over <laughs> and share in my wealth because you obviously don't have any, you knucklehead. And then he's sitting there and he's, he's, he's here in the party. He's watching them from a distance. Drink that good wine. He's smelling those steaks. And he's going, I could have all of that. And what do I have? I got no fields. I got no cattle because I've been working on this stupid boat. I'm up to my elbows in sticky, smelly pitch, slathering another bucket of that stuff on this hole to make it watertight because someday, God said, it'll pay off. Month after month, year after year, friends, you have to really believe a flood is coming to stay at that. Do you get the point? to pass on so many good things you see all your neighbors around you enjoying because you have a longer-term goal. I mean, yes, we know the end of the story. We know that Noah's trust in God was vindicated when the flood did come. And at that point, all the ribeyes, all the milk, all the wine, all the fresh bread in the world didn't matter. At that point, he indeed was very glad he hadn't abandoned the project and just built his own little kingdom. But during construction, all he had was God's promise. All he had was God's word. That's the kind of thing Jesus is talking about. That's what it means to build your life on his promise. He says this world is not your home, and this world can't give you anything better than what I can give you. And we say, yes, I believe that, but how do I build my life on that instead of chasing the security and the wealth and the happiness and the joy of this life? Repeatedly, the Bible refers back to Noah's experience as a metaphor for all of life. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand and real joy can be found only by building our life on him. So uh, there's a couple of key questions that I think this leads to. This is the first one. Am I wasting my life? I happily stole that uh, question right from the title of a book written by John Piper. Don't waste your life. Am I wasting my family years? Am I wasting my money? Am I wasting my career? Am I wasting my retirement? Those are uncomfortable questions, but could I encourage us, members of Harvest Community Church, they're not bad questions. They're actually good questions. What am I building my life on? Because when two worlds collide, we have to choose allegiance to one or the other. That leads us to the second principle that Jesus built this around, is that Christians represent God's world in this world. Once we choose allegiance, we don't just come out of the world and build little Christian enclaves and and try to stay, stay safe behind those walls. We engage in this world as representatives of this new king. When we build our life on God's rock rather than on the world's sand, that very act draws attention to God. And that's deliberate. That's deliberate. Again, Noah, think about all those months or years that he spent building that boat rather than building up his own flocks or his own fields or whatever else he would have done otherwise, that very decision was a daily announcement without the man ever speaking a word. (laughs) Every time somebody walked by and saw off in the distance that big boondoggle of a boat that that crazy guy Noah was building, 
The very existence of that boat announced the fact that his life was about something other than just what he could get here. The very stuff of his life was an announcement that God is there and that his judgment is coming, and all of that stuff matters. It's the same thing for us. Uh, Consider how following Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount produces a life that is itself a witness. Just a couple of examples. Uh, We could go through every one of Jesus' examples in the Sermon on the Mount. For sake of time, I won't. Here's a couple. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, Jesus said um, that you are not to um, not only not murder somebody, but not even demean somebody or or hate or, or look down upon somebody in your heart. When you choose not to demean or be bitter towards someone that everybody else dislikes, we're announcing by that decision that God treats us far better than we deserve. We, as sinners, deserve to be demeaned by God, but he does not do that. He offers grace and mercy. When I offer grace and mercy, I announce that there's a better world out there. When we avoid lusting sexually after someone who's not our spouse, chapter 5, verses 27 to 30, Our life declares that real satisfaction comes only from the presence and the person of God, not from illicit, um, cheap sexual encounters or from simply fulfilling physical desires and urges for either alcohol or food or sex or whatever. It doesn't satisfy. And every time I choose not to go down that road, my life is announcing that greater world. When I refuse to divorce my spouse, chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, even when they're a total knucklehead, and everybody else around me, including many of my perhaps misguided Christian friends, are urging me to get rid of her or get rid of him. And I choose not to. That choice shouts that God is faithful to us when we don't deserve it. It's building your life on a rock that's living for a different world. It's costly. It's a powerful announcement. When I refuse to retaliate against someone who's done me wrong, Chapter 38, uh, 5, verse 38 to 42, turning the other cheek. You declare that real life comes from grace and forgiveness, not from getting even, because, oh, if God was all about justice, we would all be in hell. You see, we can go on and on with this stuff. But the very life that is built on a rock is itself a witness, an announcement to a greater reality. And it may make me look as kooky and crazy as Noah, I'm sure, did in his day, but we're not called to look cool. We're called to point to Christ. That leads to the key question, what story is my life telling? That's another perhaps heavy, a little bit uncomfortable, but good question. Like honestly, objectively, if I step back and look at how I've lived the last 12 months of my life, what I've chosen to do with my money and my time and my schedule and my relationships, what does all of it say? It's all announcing that there's something of value. What's the something? Perfect family life, successful career, getting out and enjoying great things of the outdoors, that God Almighty is the source of life. What is my lifestyle announcing to those who are watching? So these first two principles, there are two worlds and we must choose, are brought out by this um, foundations analogy. Secondly, that even when we choose the world of God, we are witnesses to it in this world, which leads us to the last and maybe the most poignant of these three points, that Jesus himself is the key to living this way. He says, the bar is now so high, you can't possibly do it. So I have come, he said, to fulfill the law, Matthew chapter 5, verse 
20. I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to make you the kind of God-honoring people that the Bible demands you be, and you can't do it on your own. I'm the key to making this happen. In the end, the Sermon on the Mount isn't a call to try harder to be better, because it doesn't work. But oddly enough, the opposite is also not true. It is also not simply permission to be less than perfect. Like, it's okay, you can't make it, and God knows that, so don't sweat it. It's actually neither of those things. If I come away feeling so burdened by the Sermon on the Mount that I can never measure up, I've missed the point. If I come away feeling like, oh, it's fine, God's, God's okay with me, I don't have to worry about it, I've probably also missed the point. In the end, the Sermon on the Mount is the call to repent of every sinful, self-glorifying tendency in my heart. And there are several that is so strongly pulled on by this world, confess those things as sin to Christ and experience the forgiveness and the new life that only he can bring. To live for him, to build our life on his rock. I found myself on this point going back again to who was who Jesus talking to originally? Understanding that is always the first step in making sure we're, we're getting what he's saying and then it's easier to see how it may apply to us because the human heart is the same from the first century to the 21st, but some of the historical and cultural situations are really different. Again, we mentioned earlier, Jesus was talking in the first century to his disciples in the presence of these, this larger crowd. He wants them to hear. He's addressing the disciples, but this is like for everybody, right? And this is a group of people who are first century Jews. Uh, That meant they thought of themselves as God's people because historically that's a big part of what it meant to be one of God's people was to be Jewish. Uh, It was more than just their ethnic background. It meant that they were going to synagogues. uh, They were listening to the rabbis, the uh, trained scholars, teach them the things of the Torah, the Old Testament, the law of Moses, because that was the authoritative book. God had spoken through Moses and gave us the first five books of the Bible, the foundation of the whole thing. And so the rabbis would come along and teach and explain what the teachings of Moses meant. So you go listen to those teachings and you do your best to live the way the rabbis taught you because they were speaking on behalf of Moses who had been given a message from God. Because of all of that, we were God's people. They'd been brought up, they'd spent their whole lives learning that religion was a matter of having the right beliefs and living the right way which is part of why I think Jesus is so shocking in what he says, because he's trying to jolt them out of that mindset. It's a very difficult thing to do. That's why verses 28 and 29 conclude the Sermon on the Mount, noticing that the crowds, when they heard what Jesus was saying, were astonished. They were like, did he he just say what I thought? Like, did I hear that right? I heard it. I mean, they were, they were shocked. Why were they shocked? It tells us. Because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. He was not just the latest in a long line of trusted rabbis, um, basically showing his credentials and saying, I'm teaching you what this other rabbi taught and this well-known rabbi a couple generations ago taught, which is consistent with what the prophet said, which is all a reflection of what Moses said, so that's why you should listen to me. Because I got this long line of credentials behind me. Jesus essentially took that whole long line and went, pshah. And he just goes directly to the words of God. And he says, as God in human flesh, I'm going to tell you what God's word to Moses meant there. And they were like, whoa. That's pretty audacious. Nobody teaches that way. It is audacious. He was either crazy or he's right. 
It was a shock to hear that they couldn't just try harder, nor were they being let off the hook, but that he himself had come to fulfill the commands that God had given through Moses. That was their counterfeit spirituality. That's what he's trying to jolt them out of, to realize that to be my follower, you have got to disengage from this world in which you can just go to the synagogue and listen to all the teachings and live the right life and then build your little kingdom and God will just bless you. None of that matters. Build your life on me. Build your life on me. That's where you're gonna find life. That's what he was saying to them. In our day, the counterfeit spirituality is very present and just as influential, although the details vary pretty widely. The most common counterfeit spirituality that church-going Christians face could probably be called American cultural Christianity. Not very creative, but for lack of a better term, we'll go with that. American cultural Christianity. It's common to put a cloak of Christianish teachings and um, songs and, and ethics, you know, lifestyle um, behaviors, put that kind of as a cloak over what at its core is essentially the same kind of life that everybody else around us is living. That's really common. I'm not saying how many of us fall into that trap. I don't know. I'm just kind of looking at the religious landscape in America and saying that's pretty common. For us to kind of be about the same things in life that essentially all of our neighbors are about, whether they're Christians or not. We're kind of on the American cultural treadmill. And we can wrap ourselves with that cloak of Christian teachings, but not really be fundamentally different at the core. That is very possible. And even with the very best of intentions, well-meaning people can try to pursue God, but we get sucked into that cultural narrative. And we all know what that narrative is, don't we? We all know what the narrative is. Oh, it comes in a hundred forms and with a thousand different details, but it's the same narrative at the core. It's what we usually refer to nowadays as the American dream, a phrase that itself used to mean something different 200 years ago, but that's another story. And, and we know the path that's laid out, right? Get an education when you're young. And there's one purpose nowadays for education, very different than it was a couple hundred years ago. The purpose of education is to get a marketable job skill. The more marketable, the better, because education leads to career. So you get into a career, you find a job, you do something that you love and can make money at so that you can sustain yourself. Um, You get married, probably, not necessarily, but probably. Have a family, uh, earn an income, the more the better. We're proud of one another our kids, when they're doing well financially, lots of career prospects, that's, they're on the track. They're doing well. We enjoy the comfortable life that our culture offers to the best of our ability, but ultimately all of this is aiming at that one holy grail of the American dream, that one nirvana, that one destination that's going to be the creme de la creme, retirement, Right? where you can finally get there in your 60s, or if you're a real winner at the game of life, you get to do it when you're 58 or 59, and we really envy those people, and finally really live the life you want to live. You have enough now that you don't need to work, and you can finally do what you want all the time and enjoy the good things of life all the time. We know what we need to do, sometimes from an early age, to get on that treadmill and make that happen. Again, it looks real different 
for everybody, but, but we figure out pretty quick in school or depending on what career you choose, if you're working outside your home or whatever kind of lifestyle you pick, it's not that hard to figure out pretty soon, like, what am I going to have to do to make this work? What's demanded of me? And so we jump on the treadmill and we grind away because that's what everybody does. That's what everybody else is doing. How do you not do that? That pull is so strong. We feed the machine because the machine will move us along the path. And friends, the machines are hungry. They are hungry. And they don't love you. But they demand everything from you. I look around in my own life, I look around at lives of friends and family members, look around at the broader landscape, what people write about, what they're experiencing. Some of us have employers that demand such wide availability, such long hours, that there's virtually no time or energy left for the other things that are important in life. And we ourselves may not even feel good about it. We may have serious misgivings about it, but like, what do you do? Because we feel like we have to. That's what everybody does. That's just what you do. And so we do the best we can. The machine is hungry, and it doesn't love you. But it will demand your ultimate allegiance. Maybe it's not a job. Maybe it's the sports programs our kids are in, which if you're a parent these days, you know how that has multiplied in terms of demand over just the last couple of decades. There was a time when it was possible to sign up little Susie for violin lessons or little Teddy for soccer and just enjoy some good times and some some healthy sports or, or extracurricular activities, and those are getting harder and harder to find. Many of these programs, extracurriculars, require so many practice hours, so much money invested in gear and out-of-area trips, so many volunteer hours and fundraisers that almost everything else in life gets crowded out. The machine is hungry. It does not love you, but it will demand everything from you, and if you don't pay it, you're out. So pay it. And we feel like we don't have a choice. Like, you have to, because I can't live with just being out. It doesn't seem right. These are struggles. And friends, I want to be very honest and gracious and careful when I also say that even some of the choices we make as Christians for our families can demand a ton of things from us that pull us away from building on God's rock and building on God's sand. For a few years, um, our daughter was in a Christian school. Loved it. Wouldn't change that. I'm so grateful for the options of Christian education that many of our families have. But it's also possible that even Christian schools demand so much of a family's money and time that there just isn't time left for anything else. One of the real tragedies I had being in that school was meeting other parents, and there were a few I can remember specifically, who were Christian people. One couple in particular, I met the wife, talked to her. Yes, we've been in the area for two or three years now. Wonderful. What church do you go to? Well, we haven't been able to find a church. Oh, really? They're not that carefully hidden. I, I mean, obviously... I didn't say that. <laughs> but I did think it. I'm like, what do you mean I haven't been able to find a church? Well, you know, I kind of got busy, you know, and another son when we all liked, and so we just kind of got busy, and so for two or three years, the Christian school became their de facto church. The husband works, kids go to school, mom serves at school. That's just what they do. And not everybody does that, but I think it illustrates the point. The machines are hungry, and they demand a lot. Now, I just threw out three ideas. There's work, there's extracurriculars, there's schools, there's different things. There could be a dozen other things. 
I just happen to know those three are, are really prominent in our community. I mean, our larger Hillsborough community, maybe even our church community, I don't know. I put them out there for us to consider what does it mean for us today to build our lives as Jesus' disciples on his rock, living for that world and not for this world, understanding that, unfortunately, that's not just a neutral choice. This world is hungry, and it demands. It does not love you, but it demands ultimate allegiance. It is very difficult to navigate that. But when Jesus tells us to build our house on the rock, he's giving us great hope. He's actually giving us great hope. They're hard questions, but they're also hopeful questions. Because the solid rock, what he's urging us to do, again, get our eyes up and think about the end. When when it's all said and done, what do we want our lives to have stood for, to have meant? That's, That's what he's asking us to do. My disciples, he says, build their lives on the rock. The solid rock, the one foundation that will absolutely stand up in the end is the atonement for sin that is only available in Christ Jesus. God condescended to become man, to die on the cross in our place, to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might embrace him as Savior and King, the one who has absolute authority to do with us as he will forgiving us with his unbounded mercy, but also taking our lives and demanding everything. He too is hungry, but unlike the world, he loves you desperately. But we can't have two masters. So he says there is great hope in building your life on the rock. The Sermon on the Mount, if it's nothing else, I think is a call for us to not build our lives on any other promises of joy, any other demands on time and money and energy. These are things we must engage in. It's the stuff of life. But how to build that life on the right foundation, not the wrong one, that's the key. The focus of the parable isn't on the house. It's on which foundation the house is being built on, what it's all for. Build your life on his salvation, on allegiance to his world, and on representing that world in this one. It will cost us sometimes, somehow, I don't know how, but it will cost us. But the good news is he says it's worth it. It's worth it a hundred times over. The Bible says that when we get to heaven, the glories that we find there won't even be worth comparing to the sufferings of this present age. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter eight. In other words, live not just for the kingdom of Matt, because it'll pass away, Build the kingdom of Christ because it will endure in the end. That's the only home that actually lasts forever. It's hard now, but he says, if you want to be my disciples, get your eyes up and live for it together and you will find that that foundation is the only one that will not let you down. If it costs us a little bit, friends, then so be it. Ah, It's easy to say on a Sunday morning, that's hard for me to live, but that's really what I aspire to. I invite you to aspire to it with me. If it costs a little bit, so be it. With the knowledge that in the end, your God is faithful and true. His words matter. They will be seen to come through in the end, to be vindicated in the end, and it will have been worth it a million times over, whatever it costs, to stand in the presence of God and say, I didn't build my kingdom. I built yours. Well done, good and faithful servant.
You've been my disciple. Now enter the joy of your master. Jesus, that is what my heart wants when I'm thinking clearly more than anything. But as we've endeavored to say this morning so clearly, oftentimes I'm not thinking clearly at all. (laughs) I'm thinking about what's happening now and the demands on me and the frustrations and the pressures and I know every single member of this church faces the same thing. All the details are different. The struggle is the same. But I believe, Jesus, that you've given us this Sermon on the Mount, this incisive and penetrating and yet ultimately hopeful, although weighty sermon, in order to get our eyes up and to convince us not only that we just should live for your world, but that by your grace we can. And so, Father, wherever each one of us is at this morning, where those of us who are far too comfortable with this world need to be afflicted, I pray that you would bring conviction. Where those of us who are afflicted because we feel like we don't measure up need the comfort of your grace, then I pray that you would bring the comfort. But I pray that for all of us, Jesus, you would help us to see that we have a choice to build our lives on the sand or on a rock, and it is very difficult to consistently do the latter. But we want to come to you and pray for your guidance there. We want to be open and real and honest with one another and help one another be a church full of people, not just individual isolated Christians, but a whole congregation of people who are building their lives on the rock so that our lives would announce that your glory is worth far more and that we would see thousands of people in our community come to faith in Christ because of how you represent yourself through the members of this church. Jesus, make that happen for our good and for your glory. We pray these things. Amen.